have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel. Uh, this will be the last time I say this uh, for the foreseeable future because we're going to finish 1 Samuel this morning. So we're going to be in chapters 29 through 31. And what we continue to see through these last chapters of 1 Samuel is, is the theme that's been running throughout the, the whole second half of Samuel, which is this contrast between the first king of Israel and the second king of Israel. We continue to see the differences between Israel's choice of king, which is Saul, and the Lord's choice of the king, which is David. And so we see this contrast. And in the three chapters that we're going to see this morning, the differences are, are played out specifically in how Saul and David interact with two of Israel's greatest enemies, the Philistines and the Amalekites. And so on one hand, throughout 1 Samuel, Saul has been unable to conquer or even defeat the Philistines or the Amalekites. In fact, his rejection has a lot to do with how he handled the Philistines and the Amalekites. And so Saul's failure has been on, on display throughout the book of 1 Samuel. And, and as 1 Samuel has progressed, Saul, who started high and mighty, remember there's great rejoicing when he was king, but, but as the, the book has progressed, he spiraled downward and downward and downward. And last week we, we thought it was the climax of his downward fall when he visited the witch or the medium at Endor. Well, this week we're going to see his, his fall is complete because his life is going to end. And so as Saul has been on the, on the decline, spiraling down, we have seen David continuing to rise. And the stage is going to be set for David. And in this chapter, specifically, we're going to see the superiority of David as he easily defeats the Amalekites. And then in a couple weeks, we'll see David will also easily defeat the Philistines. And so there's this contrast that, that has continued to be developed by the author of 1 Samuel. So that's, that's what we're going to look at those three chapters. Let me, let me pray for us um, before, we begin, before we begin this morning. So if you would pray with me. Father, this morning as we hear your word, I pray that we would be among those who, who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and that we bear fruit with patience. And so we're asking you to make us good soil this morning. I pray that you would guard us against everything that would take your word away from our hearts, whether it be uh, Satan himself or, or a time of testing or the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, whatever would seek to prevent us from hearing your word and bearing fruit in response to it, would you guard us against that? I pray that our hearts would hear, receive, and bear fruit in accordance with, with your word this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we've got three chapters. I've got, I've got a basic outline again. We've got each point of the outline corresponding with a chapter. And so we've got David delivered is going to be chapter 29. Uh, verses 1 through 11 of, of chapter 29. And then the second point, we'll look at David and the crisis in Ziklag, uh, which will be verses 1 through 31 of chapter 30. And then finally, we'll see the death of Saul in the uh, 13 verses of chapter 31. And so as we begin, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the, the first 11 verses of 1 Samuel 29. So if you're at 1 Samuel, uh, you can follow along in chapter 29 as I begin reading. So 1 Samuel chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who's been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, 
lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sang to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you've been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in, campaign, in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me until this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and he said, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And so chapter 29, we have it picking up right where 27 left off. So we left off 27, then we had this, this, this episode with Saul, and now we're picking up 29, and, and, and there's this, this, this dilemma that David has faced. The, the Philistines are gathering for war against the Israelites, and, and remember, David was being forced to go with the, the, the Philistines into battle against the, the Israelites. And so, so David, at the, at the beginning of chapter 28, said, I'll do it. So, so Achish said, you're coming with me, and, and so he's doing it. And as they're going, the Philistines are processing, as normal, until the end of the procession gets, gets, gets to the front. And the Philistine commanders, they notice, wait a minute, those guys aren't supposed to be here. And so the question in verse 3 is, well, what are the Hebrews doing here? They, those are Hebrews that are marching with us to war. What are they doing here? And so, the, so these commanders of the Philistines, if you remember back in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, there were some Israelites that had, that had, that had gone, deployed to, to live and work among the Philistines. In chapter 14, there's an invasion of the Israelites, and when the chaos ensues, the, the Israelites switch sides, and the Israelites win. And so, so these Philistines, when they see the Hebrews, they say, wait a minute, we, we've seen this before. It's not happening this time. And so they say, we don't trust these Hebrews. So, so they're, not, they're not coming with us. And most of all, we definitely don't trust that guy, David, their leader. In their opinion, he was anything but trustworthy, and there was no convincing them otherwise. In fact, David had, had a top 10 hit that had reached the, the Israelite airwaves. It had even spread all the way to the Philistines, a song about David killing his 10,000s. And they say, what better way for this, for this one who, who, is, who has alienated himself from King Saul to, to get back in good graces than by defeating us, taking our heads back to Saul? That would, that would appease King Saul. So he's not coming with us. I don't trust him. We don't trust him. And so these Philistine commanders, they won't budge, and they require Achish to send David and his men back. And what's ironic and, and even humorous about this chapter is this conversation between Achish and David. So, so you remember, remember last, last week we saw David had been deceiving Achish about, about the raids he was making. Do you remember that? He was deceiving him, saying, no, no, I'm going to this land and this land, when really he was going to the land of the enemies of Israel. So he's deceiving him, but, but here in this conversation, Achish, at three separate points, he defends David. He says, no, 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 he's trustworthy. Uh, believe me, I know him. He's trustworthy. And so in verses 3 and 6 and 9, all three cases, Achish is boldly affirming the faithfulness and integrity of David. But we all know but that's not true. David's been deceiving him this whole time. In fact, the whole year and, year and a half that he's been in Ziklag, he's been deceiving this king. And the second thing to notice about, about this chapter is that David is being delivered by the Philistine commanders. 
I mean, they are the source of his deliverance. Remember, he's at a t- in a tight spot at the beginning of chapter 28. He's forced to go to war against the Israelites. And although David said that he would then, we can safely assume he didn't want to go to war against the Israelites. After all, he was their next king. He wasn't doubting whether he was going to be king or not. He knew he was going to be the next king. And the last thing he'd want to do would be to fight against the Israelites. And so as he's going, wondering, what am I going to do when we go to the battlefield? How am I going to, how am I going to stage this turning on the Philistines? He's delivered. He's spared. He's saved because of the Philistine commanders. They are the ones who deliver him. And so the, the background of this conversation, you have this exchange between David and Achish. And so Achish stands there apologetically emphasizing how he thinks David should go with him. He's extolling David's faithfulness, faithfulness which he has no reason to extol. So that's Achish. But then David, on the other hand, with disbelief on his face and exasperation in his voice, he protests the rejection that he has no reason to protest. The deceived defends his deceiver and the relieved disputes his relief. Do you see? David's saying, oh no, I want to go. When, in the back of his mind, he's saying, thank God that I don't have to go. But he's protesting, and then Achish is saying, I know, I know, you're faithful, I know, but you can't come. So it's, it's ironic, it's humorous, this exchange. But at the end of the day, the Lord delivers David from having to go to war with the Israelites. And so before we move on to chapter 30, I just want to stop here and make a first point of application. That's, that's simply the providence of the Lord. We see the providence of the Lord at work here. In fact, here, apart from, from one word that's on the lips of Achish, God is not mentioned at all. But that doesn't lead us to think that God isn't at work in this scene because God is clearly at work. His providence is at work. It's seen in, in quiet care or silent mercy. And so in these, these normal normal or godless circumstances, God is still clearly at work. David was in, a, was in a tough spot. He didn't have any way out. He's either going to go and turn on the Philistines in war and, and turn and, and end his relationship with Achish, or he was going to have to fight the Israelites. And when crunch time came, as they're processing the Lord quietly, even silently, delivered him and his men. And the application for us in this point is simply to say, or to recognize that the same quiet care or silent mercy is at work in the lives of all of God's people. All of God's people, even when God isn't saying, here, look at what I did, he is quietly at work in your life and in my life. We would do well to ponder the ground that we've traveled, the the murky stuff that the Lord has carried you through, the twists and the turns of your life. Can you not see glimpses of silent mercy or quiet care? Right, as we look back, we can, we can interpret providence pretty well and say, I see what God was doing. I mean, when you look back, you see the way, various ways that the Lord spared you. I mean, I think about in the lives of, of Christians before they were Christians. So maybe that's some of you, you were saved as an adult. And your life before Christ was, was as wayward as could be. And you look back and you see the various ways that the Lord spared you from certain paths or, or making grievous mistakes that were even worse than what you could have done. And you think, oh God, thank you for sparing me. I, just a few weeks ago, I heard the story of someone who, who was sharing how they had attempted to ki- commit suicide several times before they'd become a Christian. And in sharing, they could look back and say, God, God spared me. God was at work in my life. At the time, they didn't even care about God, yet they could say, God was at work in my life. We can see some relationships that, that come along through our lives, whether a spouse or a coworker or a friend, right? The, the seemingly insignificant relationships that start and then continue to be a source of, of encouragement or, or support for, for the remainder of your life. You can see God at work and providing us with what we need. Or you can see this in, in an automobile accident when there's a 16-year-old kid, a high school sophomore, who's, who's on a path that's leading away from life and has a, has a serious automobile accident and the 16-year-old escapes the accident with no injuries and that accident changes the trajectory of his life. 
And it's that accident when, when that's not God saying, look, it's, it's an accident that the, that the Lord was at work. Providence of God extends to every area of the life of the believer, and, and we should be thankful. Many other examples, maybe you have your own, but the point is that God is providentially at work even when we can't see it clearly. But then the second point of application where we see the providence of the Lord is that we see it here in human instruments. We see it in human instruments. We can't forget that this deliverance that David experiences, it comes about through the Philistine commanders. So it's not Achish saying, okay, I, I, I'm, I, I, I want David to come with us, or I want David to go. He has no power to do anything to prevent David from being sent back. Though he protests, he doesn't, he doesn't win. And David has no power. Think about it. Could David say, no, 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 I'm not going back. I'm coming. Right? David has no power. Achish has no power. David's fate is left up to the Philistine commanders. Right? The, the, the commanders of the enemy of God's people. And they deliver the anointed one of Israel. They deliver him, which is exactly the point. Right? So this story, the, the events of chapter 29, they're, they're not a story of a lucky break. David doesn't just get, get a stroke of luck. Oh, good, good job, David. You, you lucked out that one. No, this is, this is an example of divine deliverance. The Lord was at work in this situation. He used the Philistines to deliver David, which then leads to our second section, chapter 30. We see David in the crisis in Ziklag. So, so now as, as, as we come to these final two chapters of 1 Samuel, we're going to see the contrast really heightened between Saul and David. So here in chapter 30, we're going to see David on a successful mission against the Amalekites. And so he's going to defeat one of God's enemies. In the very next chapter in 31, Saul is going to be defeated by one of Israel's enemies. One of Israel's enemies. And so that's what we're going to see. So so I'm going to read chapter 30 as we go along. So, So first, I'll just read verses 1 through 10. So follow along, 1 Samuel 30. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, so they've left the the battle procession, they've come back to Ziklag. When when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great and small. They killed no one, but they carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abathar the, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered, that's the Lord answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. So David set out, and six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and four hundred men, two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. And so after being relieved by Achish, David and his men, they they travel for three days back to to the town that they'd been given in in Philistine territory, which is Ziklag. And on the way back, I can imagine the journey is lighthearted. They're they're rejoicing, celebrating, joking, right? We escaped that. We're not going to fight our our, our fellow Israelites. We're, We're going back home to see our families and our kids. And to their horror, when they arrive, the city has been burned, raised with fire. And and even worse, the city's empty of all its inhabitants. 
And so there's no one there. It's, it's a desolate city that's been destroyed. And so the Amalekites had, had raided the city. I'm sure they heard about David's tour of duty that he was going on. So they, they coordinate this raid it, with, in coordination with David and, the, and his men being gone. And so they, they raise the city, and they take all of the, the inhabitants, the, the women, the wives, the, the sons and daughters. And so when David and all his men see this, you can imagine the chaos, the yelling, the screaming, the weeping. I mean, these men, as they get back, they've lost everything. And David's not excluded. His family was gone too. So all of them, as they come back, they, they've lost everything, and they're distressed and David, not only is he, he facing the loss of, of his wife and family, he also is facing a hostile group of, of people. They want to kill him. They, they want to stone him because it's his fault. They say, look at you, David. Look, we were going to fight with the Philistines, and, and look what happened. And so they want to kill David. They want to they stone him to death. I mean, just imagine, uh, just on the outskirts of Ziklag, everything's good, and then they get there, and and things get really bad really fast. And so David is in in another tough spot, but notice how verse 5 ends. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. As distressed as he was, as angry and as confused as he probably was, he strengthened himself in the Lord, and he did so by inquiring of the Lord. He calls the high priest, Abathar. Right? This is what a leader in Israel is supposed to do when they, when they don't know what to do. They call the priest and say, help us. Let's seek the Lord. Let's inquire of the Lord. And so David, not sure what to do, he turns to the Lord and asks him specifically through the God-ordained means, through the priest, should we go after this group or not? My men, they, they're distraught. I don't know if we should go. Is, is that a foolish move? What, what should we do, Lord? And the Lord answers clearly, Go. Surely you're going to overtake them. Surely you're going to rescue. And so David and 400 men head after the Amalekites. Now 200, we learn, stay behind. Now, it doesn't say exactly why they stay behind, other than they're, they're too exhausted to continue. I can imagine these are probably the ones who are, who've been weeping the hardest. They, they're emotionally spent. They're physically spent. They say, we're, we're not leaving. We're going to keep mourning here. So 200 stay behind, and David takes 400. And so let's pick up the story, verse 11. Verse 11, they're, they're on their way. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And the Egyptian said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick. Three days ago, we had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against, the, against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. We'll stop there. So, so David and his men, they, they're on their trek. They're pursuing the Amalekites, and they encounter an Egyptian in the open country. So they're going through this wilderness, and here's this random Egyptian. He probably looked like he was on the brink of death. He'd gotten sick three days prior, and he'd been left for dead by the Amalekites. And so when David and his men find them, he hadn't had anything to eat or drink for three days. And so what did David and his men do? They give him water and food. And this man's spirit is, is revived. It's like the brightness comes back to his eyes. And, and then David begins interrogating him. 
So who are you? What, what are you doing out here? You're by yourself. You're alone. You, you don't look too good. What's going on? And he finds out he's an Egyptian who is a servant of none other than the Amalekites. He's left behind because of his sickness. He, he was no longer useful to the group, so he's left behind. And he tells David also that, that him and, and his master and all the men had, had been the ones to raid and burn Ziklag. And so they found that this man was part of the group that had done all the damage to David and his men. Now, if you can imagine the scene, I don't know if others are around at this point in the conversation, but imagine the anger that would have risen up in David and his men when he says, oh yeah, oh yeah, we, we burned Ziklag. Yeah, we did it. I mean, imagine that. Imagine the, the emotion. What temptation for David right there to kill this man. And of course, that's probably what Saul would have done, isn't it? But here we see David, his character begin to, to come forth. He, his wisdom is on display. He's not impulsive. He, he hears this information from the Egyptian. His next question is, can, can you take us to him? Not, I'm going to kill you, but hey, can you take us to, to, to your leader? To which the strange Egyptian, right, he doesn't care about them anymore. They left him for dead. So he says, yeah, I'll take you. Just, just don't give, give me back to them and, and don't kill me. To which David apparently agrees because the man leads them there. And so they're led to the Amalekite party. So I'll pick up the story in verse 16. And, at, and we did, when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land. That's the Amalekites. They're eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. And so we'll stop right there. So after this full, full night, full night and day of fighting, not a man of the Amal- Amalekites escaped, meaning David and his men killed all of the Amalekites, all of the band of people that had, that had been wreaking havoc. David and his men killed all of them, except, did you notice that number in verse 17? 400 young men who had escaped. Now, now it's interesting because how many men are with David? There's 400. So it just so happens that 400 escape, and I think that uh, I, I can't, decide the significance of that number other than this fact. 400 is the same number of men that David's army totaled, and so the, the numbers being conveyed here is, it conveys the idea that David and his men were greatly outmatched. He killed all of them except for 400, which means that, that's a small amount of the total. Only 400 escaped, and we know that David only had 400, so there's 400 against this great group, and David and his army overtook them. Although they were greatly outmatched, they had no problem handling the Amalekites. They defeat the Amalekites, God's enemy, because David sought the Lord and the Lord gave them victory. And these verses make very clear that David recovered everything. Nothing was not recovered. David brought back all, which is pretty incredible. And so when David and his 400 men head back to where they had left the other 200, conflict begins to rise. So, so look, look there in verse uh, 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Bezor. And they went out to meet David and, and to meet the people who were with them. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, 
we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. Except each man may lead away his wife and children, but that's it, and then they've got to go. So you see, here's this conflict. Some worthless fellows who are among the 400, they didn't think it was fair for the ones who had been left behind to get anything other than their family. So, so they've got a bunch of spoil that, that they've brought back, they've recovered. And as they go, these 200 come out to meet them, and, and there's some worthless men among the foreigners that say, you guys think you're getting some of this? No way. We are not giving you anything that we've gotten. You just take what's yours and you get out of here. They can have their wives and children, but that's it. And they tell them to leave. And again, verse 23, here's where we see David's character on display. Verse 23, David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And so notice how David speaks into here with a a different perspective, with wisdom. And his perspective, it changes things. So for the returning 400, the issue isn't what is ours versus what is theirs. According to David, everything is the Lord's. It's from the Lord. And he, and it would be divided equally among the Lord's people regardless of their role. Do you see that? Every team member was crucial to the team. And at the end of the day, the 400 who went and fought could not claim to be the ones who had accomplished victory. Why? Because they didn't accomplish victory. It was the Lord's victory. And David... He doesn't stop with the distribution among the 600 in verses 26 to 31. He continues, he sends portions of the spoil to all of his friends and the elders of Judah. And so he sent it to them with the message that, that this was a present from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And so, so David says, no, all, all of Israel is going to get some share. So, so even those who weren't part of our 600, we're going to send it out. And he sent it with a message saying, this is from the enemies of the Lord. In other words, David, through these presents, these various leaders, was announcing I'm the one who defeated the Lord's enemies. The Lord has given me victory, and unlike Saul, I've defeated them, and I'm going to share my portion with all of you. Because it's not mine, it's the Lord's, and so take it. he's, He's setting himself up as the one who's going to lead Israel. We see a hint of that here. But before we we move on to chapter 31, let, let me make two points of application here from chapter 30. First, I'll simply repeat the application that I made from chapter 29. And that's the providence of the Lord, which is seen in human instruments. Again, I just want to pause and recognize that as great as this victory was for Israel, as great as David's leadership and character were in this chapter, the entire recovery mission was 100% dependent upon the discarded Egyptian. Did you see that? In other words, David and his men don't find the wandering raiders in the desert if they don't happen upon the Egyptian who'd been discarded by the Amalekites. You see, if they don't find that that Egyptian, they don't find the Amalekites, they don't have victory, it's all contingent upon this man. And they don't happen upon him by chance. This is the theme, the Lord's providence is seen in this encounter. And this encounter leads to the total and complete rescue of what David and his men had lost. The Lord's providence is seen in human instruments. But then secondly, the second point of application is simply this, the unifying perspective of David. I think we see something that that we can apply here, the unifying perspective of David. How easy it would have been for the conflict over who got what to divide and separate David's men. How easy could of a split have grown there? It was a serious issue, and at the heart of it was, this is ours, 
and that's not yours. It's mine and not yours. I mean, look back at verse 22. Because they didn't go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. Do you see it there? The, the heart of the conflict, potential conflict, was entitlement. We deserve this, and they don't. It's ours. It's not theirs. And David flips the entire conflict on his head by changing the perspective. You'll not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He's the one who's preserved us. He's the one who's given the Amalekites into our hands. In other words, you don't have the right to dictate who gets it because it's not yours. And that perspective, realizing that it was the Lord's, enabled David and his men to move forward. Unified. This is the Lord's. We're, we're going to be free with this. We're going to be unified in this. And they could move forward and rejoice that they had their families back. They'd, they'd regained all that they had lost. And in terms of application, how easy it is for church life, for church ministries, for church budgets to be conceived of in these same terms, ours versus theirs. This is mine, and that's not yours. All you get is this, and I get that. How easy, and how easy it is for me as a leader to be unlike David and to give in to these people or those people, this side or that side. And the problem with all of that is at the end of the day, it's not ours. It's not ours. God has been gracious to us here. He has. Fox we have been recipients of God's grace. But at the end of the day, not one ounce of the good that we have here is the result of our ingenuity, our insight, our well-doing. Nothing about us. At the end of the day, it's the Lord's. It's His. It's not yours. It's not mine. Brothers and sisters, God has given us this church and this ministry, and it's ours only in the sense that we have temporary possession of it. But it's come to us from the hands of God, and our goal, our purpose, must be as one body to move forward together, as one, not divided, us and them, but one, moving forward together towards the mission, towards being good stewards of this possession, this gift that God has given us. Fox Hill Road Baptist Church is the Lord's church, and as such, it is the possession of all of the Lord's people who've committed to be a part of it here. And so if you're a member of this church, this is your church. And I want to tell you three quick things. They're not on the outline, so, so get your pen ready. If you're a member here, three things you should know. One, you have a voice. You, if, if you're a committed member of this body, you have a voice, and your voice is important. Right? Just like the 200 were as important as the 400. As the 400. If you're a member here, you have a voice. Second, you have to use your voice. Because you are a necessary part of this body, your voice is a necessary voice. Right? You don't have a voice just to be quiet. If you're joined in a member here, you have a need to speak. Which means you should seek a place to serve this body. Which means you should try and come to members' meetings. Which means you should commit to being part of the regular gatherings. Right? These are ways that you use your voice. You become part of this body. So you have a voice, use your voice. But third, and most importantly, use your voice. But do not, do not, do not use your voice as the wicked men of verse 23. Do not use your voice to spread discord among this body. Don't do it. Don't be a source of disunity. Don't let your voice promote the us versus them mentality. Right? That's the worthless men. That's what they did with their voice. That's not what we're to do. And I'm talking to myself here. 
and I want to say this clearly, I want to say it sensitively but clearly, I would rather you not be a part of this church than to be a part of it and be a constant source of division. And that's not, that's not me. That's the Lord who says that. Division is an enemy of the church, and members of the church cannot, must not, stir up division. In fact, in, in the letter to Titus, Paul says, as, as for the one who stirs up division, you know what you do? You warn them once, you warn them twice. If they don't listen, kick them out. And so the Lord, through Paul to Titus, says, if someone is causing division and they won't stop, kick them out. That's not me. That's, that's the word of the Lord. And so, so hear that. If you're a member here, you have a voice. I want you to use your voice, but there's one thing you must not do with your voice, and that's create discord. Which leads us finally, chapter 31. 31. So in verse 31, it's just 13 verses, and we see the death of Saul. And actually, it doesn't take all 13 verses because verse 1 summarizes the entire chapter. So look at verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. So we're back to the battle. The Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So that's it. The, the Philistines and the Israelites finally get to battle, and, and the Philistines win, and the Israels flee, and they're slain. I mean, that, that's chapter 13. The rest of the story focuses simply on just, just the details. Verse 2 says, Jonathan and Saul's other two sons were killed. Remember Jonathan? He had been a key part, right? We, we, he was a good guy, right? David's friend, a partner in the ministry. He had been the one who had actually been the source of defeat of the Philistines earlier in, in chapter 14, but here he dies, and his two brothers die. And verse 3 tells us Saul was wounded by the archer. So there's archers that hit Saul, and he's wounded. And Saul, not wanting to give any Philistine the pleasure of killing Israel's king, he says to his armor bearer who's with him, kill me, put me out of my misery. I'm going to die. I want you to do it so that a Philistine doesn't get a chance to do it. And the armor bearer says, no way. I'm not going to do that. He's afraid. Saul falls on his own sword. So, so Saul ends his own life on Mount Gilboa, and his armor bearer follows suit. Thus, verse 6, Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. So Saul's, Saul's dead. And the Israelites, when they see the devastation, they all flee their cities, and they leave them for the Philistines to dwell in. So, so they all run away, and then the Philistines take over all the, the cities that the Israelites had been living in. And then in verses 8 through 13, the Philistines, they, they see all these cities and there's all this spoil from the Israelites. And as they're going through, they, they also go through the battlefield and they, they find Saul and his three sons who are dead there. So that just tells us what kind of defeat this was. So Israel, the Israelites, they don't even care about the body of their king and the royal family, which would have been something that people cared about. But the defeat is such that they just run away. They say, we don't care. We're out of here. So it's so when the Philistines come, they see these bodies of, of the slain king and his family and the Philistines take them take the bodies, and they put them on walls. They mount the bodies as, as trophies of victory, as even sacrifices to their pagan gods, saying, look, we defeated that, that God of the Israelites. And so they're rejoicing over the defeat of Saul. And so the only non-tragic news to come out of this chapter is the news of the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who upon hearing of what the Philistines had done to Saul, they, they rise and they go on this rescue mission. And they recover the bodies of Saul and his sons and they give them a more fitting burial. They, they burn their bodies and they bury their bones. But that's the only good news to come out of here. And then just like that, 1 Samuel is over. 
comes to an end, the, the end of the first monarch of Israel. Now the story, as I said, continues seamlessly in chapter or in 2 Samuel 2, which we'll look at next week. But as we close this, this final chapter of 1 Samuel, I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish with one final application. And it, it's a simple application. And it's a fitting way to close this. And, and that application is simply this, the Lord fulfills his promises. The Lord fulfills his promises. The point is very clearly illustrated with the death of King Saul. So if, if you're with us last week, do you remember when he visited the medium at Endor? And do you remember when, when Samuel is awakened and he comes and he speaks to Saul? Do you remember what he said to Saul? He said, the Lord's going to give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. In other words, you're going to die tomorrow. That's, that's what Samuel says to Saul yesterday in this text. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. The Lord has promised Saul's judgment. He's promised the loss of the kingdom ever since chapter 13. That's when it started. That's when the promises regarding Saul started. But finally here in 31, it comes to pass. And the thought that we should come away with, which is the thought that's been repeated all throughout 1 Samuel, is that the Lord is in control. He's in control and he fulfills his promises. And so we see the promise of, of Saul being rejected and Saul's death that was promised comes to pass. But in order to, to help us from being too discouraged or too disheartened by, by the demise of Saul, we should also remember that the Lord has made some other promises in 1 Samuel. Promises regarding David. So just as the Lord promised the fall of Saul, he's also promised the rise of David. And so, and so as we look out to the horizon of 2 Samuel, there's, there's light. And we're going to see, Lord willing, next week we're going to begin seeing the rise of David. Well, let, let me close this with prayer this morning.